Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning in the Lord's house. I invite you to stand with us as we sing together, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. as white as snow. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself so amazing, love so amazing, Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessing Messiah, 
love so amazing, love so amazing, Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed please bow your heads and pray with me. Almighty God of heaven and earth, how wonderful it is to be in your presence here today. The mere whisper of your voice, Lord, brings us to our knees as we bask in the glory of your majesty. We long for you, Lord, more than anything we desire to be with you, to commune with you, to know the peace that only comes from being wrapped up in you. But Lord, as we enter your house and prepare to celebrate communion, we are overwhelmed by how unworthy, how blemished and sinful we are. In the light of your glory, we are naked and ashamed. But into our darkness, you delivered your Son to be our Savior. So Father, we pray that we enter into worship today with a humble spirit and a grateful heart. Today, we give our lives to you anew that we may be like clay in the hands of the potter as you form us into new vessels. Lord, let the bread that was your body be a reminder that you have already written the end of the story. Let our hearts hear the words as you remind us that you have overcome this world. Gracious God, as the juice passes our lips, may the sweetness of your blood break the chains of sin as we are washed white as snow. We don't know how you could love us so much. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Welcome. 
How exciting is it to be here today? Um, you guys that are visitors, this is a great day. We are thrilled to have you here with us. This is a glorious time in the life of UBC, and we are thrilled that each and every one of you are here to worship with us today. Um, we have come so far as a church. We have been brought to this point today, and to be able to celebrate communion together is such an amazing blessing. So if you are a visitor today, if you will open up your worship guide, we have a little tear-off portion on the right-hand side. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, giving us some of your basic information, we'd love to be able to reach out to you, let us know how we might be able to pray for you, pray with you, um, and drop that in the offering plate as it comes by. We'd appreciate that. So here in just a minute, um, we're going to stand, we're going to welcome each other, um, and we're going to ask the kids to come forward. And as we do that, if you um, are gluten sensitive or gluten intolerant and need a gluten-free um, uh, communion element, we have some crackers up here at the front that are gluten-free. While we're doing the welcome, if you'd come up and, and grab one of those and hold on to that until uh, our communion time, we'd appreciate that. So welcome. Please stand and greet each other as the children come forward. Sing together. Your love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Your love is a mountain from beneath my feet. Your love is a mystery, how you gently lift me when I am surrounded. Your love carries me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Your love makes me sing. Your love is surprising, I can feel it rising, all the joy that's growing deep inside of me. Every time I see you, all your goodness shines through, I can feel this God song rising up in me.
you can be seated, church. You know, today we are going to experience the Lord's Supper. And there's a special part during the Lord's Supper that I always like and it makes me think. And it's when it's really, really, really quiet. And sometimes when things are really quiet, I start to go. And then sometimes when things are really quiet, my brain kind of starts to go. And then sometimes, especially whenever our pastor helps direct my brain, he says, you know what? You guys are supposed to be thinking about those things that God has done for you. Those very special things that Jesus has done. And I was thinking some of those things. And I thought, I wonder how I know some of those things Jesus has done. And then I was thinking even more, as we've been learning about discipleship, we're supposed to be doing those things that Jesus wants us to do. And I thought, you know what? So not only am I supposed to be thinking about what Jesus has done for me, but I'm also supposed to be thinking about what I'm supposed to be doing too. And sometimes those things go together. The Bible tells us that Jesus whispers to us. And sometimes he talks to us in different ways and he says that we can hear his voice. So I was wondering, when you guys hear Jesus' voice, does it ever sound like, go punch that person? Does that what Jesus' voice sound like? No. No. Okay, does Jesus' voice ever sound like, you know what, let's make faces at everybody while we pray? No. What does Jesus' voice sound like? Let's turn on our listening ears and listen really well. Yes. Yes. What else? Josiah, did you have an idea of what you think Jesus' voice sounds like? Sometimes it sounds like, like when you pray, you have to pray good and don't make silly faces and don't be rude. You know what? I think you're right. I think whenever we pray that we're supposed to be praying with all of our heart. That's very good, Josiah. Did you have an idea, Gracie Beth, of how Jesus' voice sounds to us and things he whispers? You know what? Huh? It sounds like we're praying, and it sounds like we're listening while, he's, while we're praying. Big D, do you have an idea, or do you just want to say hi? You know what? It's your mom's birthday today, and we should all tell her happy birthday. I think that's exactly what I heard Davis say. So, you know what? A big shout out to Kathy Rains and Cheryl Wilson. Happy birthday today. <laughs> Davis, thank you so much for reminding us that. You know what? God's voice, oh my goodness, God's voice reminds us and it helps us to know what Jesus wants us to do. And I have a friend that's going to read to us from John. Will you read and tell us how we know about Jesus's voice and, and how he takes care of us? I am the shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down on my life for the sheep. You know what? Jesus laid down his life for us, and he knows us. He knows us by name, and you know what? He tells us that we can know him too, and we need to listen to his voice and know his voice. And we can sometimes and oftentimes do that when we spend time in prayer when we spend time reading our Bible. And I have another friend that's going to tell us another verse out of the Bible that helps us know Jesus' voice. My sheep follow my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know what? That's how we know what to do. That's how we know how to grow in discipleship. That's how we also know what to do during Lord's Supper. 
We listen to Jesus, and he helps us know about him, the wonderful sacrifices that he has made, and how much he loves each and every one of us, and how he's called us all by name. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to know your voice, to listen to it. Father, help us to distinguish between those voices that tell us those things that don't honor you and glorify you. And Father, help us to say no to that. And instead, Father, help us to open our hearts to when you say, come know me more intimately. Come spend time in prayer. Come spend time in Bible study. Come spend time learning about God's word. Father, help us to know that voice and to obey that voice, to follow that voice and even during this special Lord's Supper time to meditate on your voice as you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing. What wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. say thy strength indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray find in me thine all in all Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Stand in him complete. 
Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow, he washed it white as snow, he washed it white as snow. the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up. So welcoming you to the Lord's table this morning, I want to do so by asking a question. I want to ask you this morning, why are you here? What brings you here? See, I feel that sometimes we go through the rhythms and the rituals of life and sometimes we fail to grasp the significance, the purpose, and the meaning behind it all. That's a struggle that's not unique to us. In fact, even the disciples wrestled with that to some extent, didn't they? See, that no matter how many times Jesus said it, no matter how many times he tried to explain it, whether it was through metaphor or a simple declaration or some sort of story, they couldn't really grasp what Jesus was about to do, right? Because Jesus was, was more than just some rabbi. He was more than just some teacher. He was Lord. Right, he was the one that was a miracle worker. They saw him heal the lame. He made the blind see. Even the winds and the waves obeyed him. He was the one that was going to restore the kingdom. So how could it be possible that he would die? That didn't make sense. They couldn't grasp that. And yet at the hands of a betrayal... Jesus was given over to the hands of wicked men and they watched. And they saw him beaten, saw him mocked, flogged, abandoned, suffering to the point that he would even consider that God had forsaken him. They watched him being crucified on the cross and laid in the tomb and it didn't make sense. 
They couldn't understand it. And yet in a couple days, these ladies went to the tomb and they saw that the stone had been rolled away. They saw these messengers that said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And over the next 40 days or so, Jesus would appear not just to these ladies, but to up to 500 different men. Right? And he would share a meal with them. He'd walk along the road with them. He would ask them to touch and feel his scars. And even then, I don't know that they fully grasped it. They knew a miracle had occurred. Something miraculous had happened, but the, the significance of it all was still somewhat lost on them. And I wonder if that's true of you and me. Right? We know the stories. We know that Jesus died for our sins. He was raised to new life. But do we really grasp the significance and the meaning? See, it wasn't until the Spirit of God descended upon men and women that their eyes were opened and their mind began to comprehend and their hearts began to burn within them all that Jesus had accomplished. It was when the Spirit of God fell that Peter stood up in front of the masses and said, Jesus, the man of Nazareth, was a man accredited to you by God by many miracles and signs and wonders. And it was in accordance to God's plan that he would be handed over to the hands of wicked men so that they would put him to death so that God could set him free from the agony of death and show that even the grave had no hold on him. So therefore, be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And it was then that it all began to make sense. That they could look back on that night that he was betrayed and understand what took place when they shared in this meal. That it was his body broken for them. His blood poured out for them. It was then that it began to make sense. So the scriptures are clear. We don't approach the Lord's table without giving careful examination to ourselves. And so let it not be, let it not be lost on us this morning. Right, that when we look within ourselves and we look around ourselves, we see that we are broken. Something's gone wrong. Something's missing, something's empty. We need to be rescued. We need healing. So when we approach the Lord's table, we see that in God's great love for us, he has sent Jesus to be that rescue. By his wounds and by his scars, we are healed. <laughs> and yet even more amazingly, he didn't send Jesus just that we might have our own personal rescue. He sent him to defeat the grave itself. And so as a result, the followers of Jesus for thousands of years have gone from city to city, town to town, culture to culture, generation to generation, gathering around this table to proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ that death itself has been defeated. <laughs> so let us approach this table today in full view of God's mercy, being mindful once again that we are healed through the blood of Jesus and seeing once again that he gives us the hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we come to your table broken. 
and in need of your healing touch. We come to your table proclaiming the good news that death has been defeated. And so let it not be lost on us this morning as we seek to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
Blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Take and drink. Let's pray together. Father God, what a thing to behold your mercy and your grace. What a thing to encounter this beautiful table where we can remember all that you've done for us. So, Father, let it be indicative now of our desire for you, our need for you, and for you to respond faithfully from heaven and send your spirit now in a full measure that you would not hold back, Father, you would not delay, that you would open our hearts, our souls, and our minds to see you clearly today, that we could be transformed for your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, the Lord's Supper does serve as an appropriate introduction for us this morning because it helps recenter us. Right? It helps us maintain the appropriate focus of what this is all about. Right? If you've been gone for a couple of weeks or maybe you're visiting with us today, let me just give you a quick summary of, of where we are and the things that we've been discussing. Right? We started off the new year with this emphasis on the fact that God makes all things new. We acknowledge this is a new season for this church. It's a new season for us individually. We looked at Psalm 98 and the power and the beauty of singing to the Lord a new song. And that set the tone for us to start a journey to figure out, well, what does that song need to look like? Right? What does that begin to take shape? How does that begin to take shape? And so we've been walking through these key convictions, right? Things that we hope will begin to shape our culture here as a church family, that will begin to give direction towards our vision. So we've walked for the last several weeks through some of these convictions that we want to be a church that is gospel-centered, biblically guided, prayer-driven, with the focus on fasting. And now we're talking about discipleship. Now, discipleship has been a little bit different because it's so comprehensive in nature and it's so critical. We've actually taken several weeks to walk through this conviction of discipleship. 
A couple weeks ago, we started with an introduction that focused on our identity as disciples to see that that is essentially who we are. We are those who follow Jesus. We are not defined by an earthly father, but a heavenly father who calls us home. We are children of God and we follow him no matter where he leads, right? Now then we moved beyond that last week and started talking about the work of discipleship. We turned to that famous passage, that great commission in Matthew 28, to see that the task that he has entrusted to us is to go and make disciples. That's what we've been asked to do. And that work is gonna lead us into all nations, that we're gonna need to baptize, we're gonna need to teach everyone to obey all that Christ has commanded. This is the work that he's been entrusted to us, and yet we need to see it not just as a task, but meaningful work that is an act of worship. Right, so we've talked about the identity, we've talked about the goal, and if I were gonna summarize those two weeks, I would say we are to be disciples who make disciples. It's that simple. Some of you are thinking, did you really need two weeks to get all that out, Jeremiah? Well, yes, I did, okay? But that's the summary. Be disciples who make disciples. So we've looked at the identity, we've looked at the work. Today, we focus on the goal. If the work of discipleship is to make disciples, well, what does the goal look like? Now, that's an important question, okay? Anytime you set out to do some work or achieve certain things, we need to consider what's the purpose? What's the point? What's the goal behind it? Have you ever found yourself doing some sort of work or task where you didn't really know what it was for and how unenjoyable that is? We even have a name for it, don't we? Busy work, right? It's, it's this idea that we can do these things that may feel productive or may seem like they have intrinsic value, but in the end, they're just keeping us occupied. Now, that's an important thing for us to become aware of today as we begin this discussion because in our culture, we love to be busy, don't we? Man, we love busyness. Now, we, we may act like we don't, but make no mistake, it's become a cultural trademark in our society, hasn't it? So I wanted to, to try to bring some pictures to life about how busy we are in our society. And so I sat down with my favorite research assistant, which is Google, and just entered in stats on being busy. And who knew what was going to come up? I didn't know if there was going to be a survey, a poll, some figures. I came across a couple of interesting articles that have been written over the last couple of years that kind of capture this, this cultural value of busyness in our society. Uh, I found one in The Economist and one in The Washington Post. And what was remarkable to me was how similar these articles sounded and, and how they walked through a, a comparable trend and in, 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 uh, several themes that emerged in both pieces. So I want to read you a couple of quotes. One of the things that was interesting was that both articles began by explaining that this is not what people thought. That if you went back a couple of generations, they actually anticipated less busyness, not more. Here's how The Economist starts in its article. The prediction sounded like promises. In the future, working hours would be short and vacations long. Our grandchildren, reckoned John Maynard Keynes in 1930, would work around three hours a day and probably only by choice. Economic progress and technological advances had already shrunk working hours considerably by his day, and there was no reason to believe this trend would not continue. Whizzy cars and ever more time-saving tools and appliances guaranteed more speed and less drudgery in all parts of life. Social psychologists began to fret whatever would people do with all their free time. The Washington Post says it like this. During the 1950s, the post-World War II boom in productivity, along with rising incomes and standards of living, led economists and politicians to predict that by 1990, Americans would work 22 hours a week, six months a year, and retire before the age of 40. Y'all, we have gotten this all wrong. 
right? I mean, what did we do? I mean, 20 hours a week, three hours a day, maybe by choice. I should be about five years away from retirement, okay? We done gone and messed things up, all right? And so all of them predicted this copious amount of leisure time, and yet the opposite has happened, right? We find ourselves just constantly busy. I mean, it's unbelievable how busy we are and how our full our, sca- our calendars get. Now, why is that? What, what's caused it? Well, they each kind of have a different presentation to answer that question. One of the things that's really notable is that it's so prolific in our culture, in our country, that the economists pointed out that even the Europeans have a term for it. They call it the American disease because we work so hard and we're always so busy. Here, here's one of the reasons that they say we, we suffer from this disease. The explosion of available goods has only made time feel more crunched as the struggle to choose what to buy or watch or eat or do raises the opportunity cost of leisure. For example, choosing one thing comes at the expense of choosing another and contributes to feelings of stress. The endless possibilities afforded by a simple internet connection boggle the mind. And when there are so many ways to fill one's time, it's only natural to crave more of it. And the pleasures always feel fleeting. Washington Post gives a similar example, but with a slightly different bent. People compete over being busy. It's about showing status. If you're busy, you're important. You're leading a full and worthy life. Keeping up with the Joneses used to be about money, cars, and homes, but now, if you're not as busy as the Joneses, well, you'd better get cracking. It's a cultural status symbol, isn't it? And so we fill all of our time, all of our schedules. We, we plan every hour of the day with multiple activities. We plan out our weeks. We plan out our months, our seasons, our years. And we just have all these things on our plate. And we snuff out any opportunity for a spontaneous relationship. Hey, man, you want to go grab lunch? Can't today. Busy. Well, what about next week? Nah, busy then. What's 2018 look like for you? Right? I mean, that, that's how most conversations typically go. And here's what both articles ended up pointing out, which was really compelling was that despite all this activity and energy and effort, it leads us to the same point where we stop to ask, why? What's the point? In fact, I love the way that The Economist concluded it. Modern life, that leisure squandering, money hoarding, grindstone nosing, frippery buying business has left us, left us exasperated. We see everyone everywhere running, running, running. But to where? For what? people trading their time for all sorts of things, but is the exchange worth it? See, both articles come down to that question, what's the point? And what we see is that we are fostering a culture of busyness more than we're fostering a culture of purpose. Because we fail to stop and ask ourselves, what's the goal? What's the point? Now, this is true in our society, but it's absolutely true in our churches. So if we're going to consider the work of discipleship, we need to also consider what's the goal? Because churches are good at making us busy, right? We can fill calendars, we can fill schedules and activities and events and do all sorts of things, but we need to stop and ask ourselves, but to what purpose? What is the point? See, today we want to foster a culture of purpose and understanding what is the goal of making disciples, okay? Now, here's how we're going to seek to address that question. We're going to be in the book of Acts, and we're really going to look at a comprehensive picture. And the reason I want us to be in the book of Acts is that if you consider the progression, right, that Jesus uh, calls his disciples, they understand their identity, he completes his task, and then after the resurrection, he gives them the work. It is then 
after that task is pro pro provided onto the disciples that we have the book of Acts showing us what it looks like when followers of Jesus begin to make disciples. And so if we read through this book, we begin to see what the goal is, what the picture looks like. And it gives us a clear understanding of how to focus our efforts. Now, before I actually begin reading some of these passages, here's what I want to point out to you. That one of the most important instructions that we find after, or in addition to the Great Commission, in this task to go and make disciples, comes in the first page of Acts. When Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, wait. Wait on the Holy Spirit. And we must not forget that. Because our propensity, because we're busy people, is going to be to hear these, these teachings and hear these callings and then get up and go, 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 go. And it's a reminder that we move under the Spirit's power, not our own. This is his work, not ours. And so as I've been saying throughout the series of these key convictions, at the very least, this needs to inform our prayers and show us how to pray. We're gonna to get to the details of how we begin to implement these things. That vision's gonna come sooner or later, but at the very least, we must pray and make sure that as we move forward towards this goal and towards this work, we do so in the spirit of God. So we must not forget that. Now, what happens? The spirit comes and, and Peter stands up and he shares the gospel, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the man accredited to you by God with signs, miracles, and wonders, was handed over to you according to God's plan so that you would put him to death so God could free him from the agony of death and show us that death itself doesn't have a hold on him. Therefore, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. This is where the first step begins in making disciples. This is what Peter does to initiate the process. So what happens after it? Now, what I want to do this morning is do a survey of the book of Acts. Now, I actually had a whole lot more verses written down, and we just don't have time. And so I'm going to do my best. You could try to follow, but good luck, okay? So I'm going to try to be quick uh, with this. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to read several verses and, and I'm hoping to identify just a couple of key themes that are going to paint for us the picture of what is the goal for discipleship, okay? So after G, uh, Peter stands up and preaches in 241, those who accepted his message were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. 247, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 4-4, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 4,000. 541, day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that is Jesus the Messiah. 6-7, so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 8-1, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 9-31, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. 11.19, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. 13.44, the word on that next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. 14.1, there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. 14.20, the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in the city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. 15.41, 
He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 16.4, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. 18.8, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. 18.23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul sent out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. 19.20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 28.31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I actually edited that down quite a bit. So what do we see? Man, I love this book. Right? At some point, we're going to go through it together just bit by bit and chapter by chapter. But what are the themes that we see? The first thing that I would point out is that when the disciples, when the followers of Jesus began to take seriously the work of making disciples, a movement occurred. That's what took place. Right? That's the first thing that we want to discuss. Did you see how many references there were? 3,000 were added to their number. Many people believed. It increased rapidly. The whole city, the whole region. This was a rapid and expansive movement of God. The goal of making disciples is to start a movement. Now, what do we mean by that? See, movement is a word that is pretty well-known in missiological circles. We'll sit around and we'll talk about church planning movements. Certain agencies and missionaries will have specific terms, right? And they'll define it based on certain numbers. I don't feel compelled to get in that detail this morning. What we see as we walk through the book of Acts is this, though. It was an eruption of salvation with hundreds of churches planted and thousands of baptisms all over the region. That is a movement. And that's what we're after. Right? Make no mistake, the goal of making disciples is to see a movement of God unleashed. All right, so I've said it to you before, let me say it again. My goal is not to focus on our attendance numbers. I'm not obsessing about the budget. Or I'm not worried about coming up with activities and events and programming and planning. We're not trying to become a new relevant church that's trendy so that maybe people will stop going to this one over in this part of town and start coming here. Now listen, I'm not saying we're going to shut our doors. I'm not saying we're not going to have things to do. But I'm telling you, it's not our goal. Because that's thinking far too small. The goal of making disciples is a movement of God. We want to see thousands baptized. We want to see hundreds of churches planted. That's our goal. That's a movement. And so what that means is this. Movements don't occur amongst those who already believe. Movements occur among the lost. And so our focus, our goal is going to be to reach the lost. So that, that has a couple of implications. The first is that I want this church to become, and in some many respects I hope it already is, a place where lost people can come and we can have the assurance that they're going to hear the gospel, right? They're gonna hear it in their Sunday schools, they're gonna hear it from the pulpit and the worship and from the congregation, and they're gonna have a chance to respond and be saved. And my hope and my prayer is that we see thousands of baptisms right up there because we are faithfully committed to proclaiming the gospel and we're here for the lost. But we do so with an understanding that it's not just come and see. We're not gonna just wait for them to show up. That part of making disciples is to go and make, that we are going to be those, that if we are part of this church, we're going to see ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see ourselves as those who are sent. 
And we're gonna go wherever the lost might be. And there's a great chance that the thousands of baptisms we're praying for are gonna take place outside of these walls. And we're gonna see hundreds of churches planted. See, I want us to be a church that's courageous enough to give consideration to the question, when does a church become too large? You know, this work of making disciples really challenges the mega, the mega church mentality in this idea of satellite campuses that revolve around one personality. We need to go and plant churches and see it spread across an entire region. That's our goal. It's to plant churches. It's to see thousands baptized. Now, this is the movement that we're after, but eventually we're going to talk about how. Next week is when we begin to talk about the methodology, right? What, is, what are some of the practical things we can do to, to make these disciples? But I want to talk about a few more components of what makes a movement possible so we can better understand how this becomes a goal. Okay, here's one of the first things that makes a movement possible. It's a simple message. It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ, right? It's Jesus. It's the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised again so that we can have new life. It is a simple message, right? We don't need to overanalyze it. We don't need to study it, okay? We don't need to go to seminary to achieve it and understand it. We don't need to market it and come up with cool slogans and, and brandings and catchphrases. We don't need to build spreadsheets and strategies, okay? We don't need to launch capital campaigns. We don't need to do all these other things to distract ourselves from the very simple message of Jesus Christ. See, part of the problem that we have in our churches today is we, we get so distracted on other different ways to communicate to this world around us that we forget the very simple message that's been entrusted to us. And one of my frustrations is it's not just that we've overcomplicated it, but we've politicized it. Right? And so now we're trying to figure out how to speak into a political arena as opposed to a spiritual one. Let me just go ahead and, and tell you where I stand politically, can I? At the end of the day, pick your issue, pick your question, pick your debate. My answer is Jesus. Racial reconciliation, how are we going to do that? How are we going to achieve it? Well, people need Jesus. What's my real answer for terrorism and ISIS and war? I can tell you, I'm not putting hope in an administration or a foreign policy or some department of defense. I believe those people need Jesus. You, know, you want to talk about sexuality? You want to talk about gay and straight, married, not married, divorce, immorality, morality? My answer is to walk alongside people and tell them that you're not defined by sexuality. You're defined by Jesus. You want to talk about abortion? Now, I'm not worried about what legislation's in place. And I'm not looking to mobilize a church to get some law passed. Because <clears throat> the real answer is to walk alongside people that are faced with a, such a tough decision and not give them the hope of a procedure, but give them the hope of a gospel. So pick your issue. It's Jesus. It is a simple message. And we need to resist the temptation to complicate it and to politicize it. We need to stay focused on who we are to be. Now, the beauty of the simplicity of the message Right? The reason that that is so important is because that's me that means it is immediately possible to share it. Right? You don't have to become a theologian. You don't have to become a scholar to share the gospel. Right? If you've accepted the gospel, then you know enough to share the gospel because it's so simple. Right? Here's one of the things that I think the devil has done. Right? He's, 
If this is our goal, if our primary task is to make disciples and that requires sharing this gospel, then he's gonna do everything he can to distract us and focus on something else that may feel productive and may feel like it has value, but in the end, it's just keeping us occupied. All right, so here's one of the things he's done. He's convinced us that the progression is this. Believe, then mature, and then you can share and serve. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is we can spend our whole lives in that second step and never get to the third. Right? And we'll begin to say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm not capable. I'm not ready. I'm not comfortable with that. I would never know what to say. I, I don't know how to do that. I just need to grow. I need to be fed right now. That's what I need. And the biblical model is much closer to the idea of believe, serve, and share, and that's how you mature. It's obedience-based discipleship. And so this task has been given to us. It's a simple message. And the reality is is that if you know enough to receive the gospel, you know enough to share it. So all we need to do to, to begin this movement is understand what is the gospel and why do we believe in it? Now, if you can't answer the first part of that, then I question if you've really done the second part. If you're sitting there going, but I don't even know how to, how to say the gospel, then what did you believe? And never mind if you walked down an aisle and you had some sort of repetitive, repetitive prayer, what what'd you put your trust in? See, if you can answer that question and you've received this gospel, then you know enough to share it. That's all we need to do is be able to say, here is the gospel and here's why I believe it. And that's how a movement begins. It's understanding that it's a simple message. But it's a simple message that is to be shared by everyone and to everyone. I love that. See, we can approach the book of Acts and oftentimes reduce it to just this story of Peter and Paul, right? These heroes of the faith that helped launch the early church, that these were the guys that that went to the Jews and went to the Gentiles, and this is where we found all of these different movements occur. And while there's some truth to that, it's a tremendous injustice to the others that were a part of this gospel spreading. So I went through the book of Acts and I did my best. I probably missed a few or misunderstood a few, but I just captured the other names of people that, that didn't necessarily just believe, but were referenced as being partners, laborers, and making sure that this movement occurred. Here are some examples. <clears throat> Peter, John, Barnabas, Stephen, Philip, Ananias, Paul, Lucius, Manion, Judas, Silas, John Mark, Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Titius, Injustice, Apollos, Erastus, Sopater, Aristocrus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychius, and Trophimus. You see why some names made it and others didn't. <clears throat> and in many other respects where it wasn't specifically named, you had references to companions, elders. My favorite that I read earlier. All except the apostles were scattered. And all who were scattered preached the gospel everywhere they went. This is a simple message that is for everyone. Right? You don't have to become a theologian or a pastor or a minister. We are all being asked to share this message. That's how movement begins. It's for everyone. And so we don't need to keep offering excuses. Right? We don't need to quit, keep trying to rationalize why we can't do this or do that. It's, it's a message that has been entrusted to all of us. And, and when it's entrusted to us, it means that we are able to take it to everyone. See, notice when you read through the Acts, they didn't move forward with any sort of discrimination or prejudice, right? They didn't qualify who needed to hear it. Every town, every village, every temple, every house, every region, they went everywhere and shared this gospel. 
And see, a lot of times we will we'll embrace this idea, but we kind of qualify and say, but only with people that I'm comfortable with, right? As long as they're white and upper middle class, I'll go and talk with them. Oh, these people over here, they make me nervous. I'm a little afraid this person bothers me, this person drives me crazy, this person is rude. I'm not going to go talk to them. And we qualify it. The message of the gospel is it is for everyone. No matter background, no matter race, no matter creed, no matter worldview, it is for everyone. So what does all that mean? I think what it means is that we need to give consideration to a couple of things. The first is this, is that since this is a task for everyone, that maybe, just maybe, you were purely designed to share this gospel. That all these other things that we pile in our life to define who we are, while they may feel productive and they may feel valuable, they could just be distracting us from what it was we were created to do. That maybe, just maybe, the greatest fulfillment you will ever have in your life is when we take this passage to go and make disciples seriously. And that becomes our sole focus and that becomes our sole work. And so the other thing that we need to consider is that if it's for everyone, we need to see our lives with a greater intentionality than maybe what we typically do. Right? Give consideration to where God has you. Right? Think about your family. Think about your classmates, your colleagues, your neighbors, the city. Maybe he's put you there for a reason that you're the one that he's choosing to go and declare this message to those in whom you encounter. Right? That it's, he's leaving it to you. He's trusting you. That we could see such intentionality that whether it's a close friend or a stranger in the mall, that we are being entrusted with the opportunity to share this gospel. This is how movements occur. So the beauty in that is this. When we see that it's a simple message that is to be preached by everyone and to everyone, this is where it begins to multiply, right? Because what we do in making disciples is not offer an invitation of, hey, come follow me, come sit and study, come sit and grow and mature. No, what we do is we tell them the very same things. We say, hey, guess what? Here's the good news of Jesus. It's a simple message. And once they respond to that message and they're saved, we say, guess what? It's for you to declare. And you should take it to everyone you know. And so making disciples is equipping people to go and make disciples. That's the catch. So now we can add to that nice little phrase, be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's a process that does not strive for addition, it strives for multiplication. This is the goal, to see a move, movement unleashed. Now, I have a tendency to emphasize that pretty strongly because it's my conviction that it feels like historically the church has neglected this part of our responsibility. But I need to be fair and recognize that's not the only component of making disciples that we see in the book of Acts, right? We, we saw it referenced multiple times that Paul or others would go and they would invest in these people, they would embrace the gospel, and then he would come back along and he would strengthen them. And that's important. This word strengthening means to build, to establish, to make firm. And, and what we see here is that part of teaching people to obey everything that Christ has commanded is a lifelong journey, right? That, that not only that, it's gonna be faced with some pretty significant opposition. You look through the book of Acts, they face persecution, 
imprisonment, beatings, death, right? That in order for us to do this, we're gonna have to be resilient. We need to strengthen one another. And how we do that is a beautiful process. And we're gonna talk about some of those things later in March, but, but make no mistake, if we only focus on sharing our faith, we may see conversions and we may see churches planted, but they're all gonna die in infancy. We have to come alongside them and stand together and be strengthened together and focused on the task at hand. This is the other part of making disciples. Now, all that said, um, here's my question for you. Our, our temptation could be to read the pages of Acts and think, you know, Jeremiah, that's really nice. Sounds good. And that's kind of a story of antiquity, isn't it? Aren't you missing that that's kind of a unique moment in time? I mean, this was Paul and Peter for crying out loud. This is God establishing his church. Can we really expect that to happen today? Yes. Absolutely. This is more than just a story of history. It's a model for who we are to be. These movements still occur. I had a list of several that I wanted to reference, but for the sake of time, let me just tell you about one. Uh, Let me introduce you to David Garrison. He's a a well-known missiologist who's worked for the International Mission Board for many years. He's currently serving as the executive director of Global Gates, which is an organization focused on reaching unreached people groups in these gateway cities. And he's been a student of Islam for quite some time. In fact, he wrote a book recently called A Wind in the House of Islam. And he went and researched through different centuries and, and different things that he was hearing reported all over the world, and he walked away with some pretty remarkable findings. Now, Garrison's going to define a movement as something that has a thousand baptisms or a thousand churches planted. And here's what he discovered. To the best of his knowledge, there's no record from the 7th century to the 18th century of any movement occurring in the Muslim world. None, to the best of our knowledge. But then all of a sudden, something changed. In the 19th century, we can document at least two. And then in the 20th century, we've seen 11. And now in the first 17 years of the 21st century, there's a document of almost 70 different movements breaking out in the Muslim world. Let me tell you about the Iranian church. I found this article the other day, and it talked about that historically in, in Iran, Christianity has been so persecuted that there's been almost zero Christian presence. That in 1979, the best estimates were that maybe there were 500 believers, right, with a Muslim background in Iran. But in the last 20 years, More Iranians have come to faith than in the last 13 centuries combined. And now the estimates are in the hundreds of thousands, if not over a million. Operation World, this agency that documents these movements across the globe, has identified that the fastest growing evangelical church on the world is in Iran. (laughs) And the second fastest is in Afghanistan, large in part because the Iranians are going next door. So these movements still happen. They still exist. Let me close with this. Not too long ago, I sat down and I had lunch with a mentor of mine. Uh, his name's Kevin Greeson, and he's a missionary that's traveled all over the world and has been catalytic in a lot of these movements. Kevin has a way of just saying things very subtly that drastically shift your perception on life. And so I had this conversation with him. I was a missions pastor still at the time, and I was talking to him about how we were trying to send missionaries and what we were trying to do. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Jeremiah, don't be content with sending missionaries overseas. You need to be obsessed with what's it going to take to start a movement. And as soon as he said that, it just cut me to the core because I realized that's exactly what I'd been doing. 
my focus had been sending people. And it felt good. It, it felt productive. It felt valuable. But I had stopped asking myself the question, to what end? What's the goal? And I left there thinking, yeah, I, what would it take to see a movement? And that began to change my whole posture in life towards ministry. And here's what it ended up happening. I began to think, well, I don't want to be the only one that has that passion. I see these missionaries have it. I see some of these agencies focus on it. But what would it look like if a church was obsessed with starting a movement of God? And that became my prayer. That the power of God would be unleashed in our lives, in this church, in this community, and around this world so that a movement of God would break out so that every tongue, tribe, and nation would come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. So I stand before you today telling you this. I'd rather spend my life going to the grave, praying for things that are far too big and running the risk of never seeing them happen in my lifetime and spending a whole life of praying for things that are far too small. And that's the type of church I want us to be. And so how does that happen? The only way it happens within us is if it starts right here. See, I think Paul serves as the appropriate example. In chapter 20, he says, I count my life worth nothing. My only aim is to finish the race to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has entrusted me to testify to the good news of God's grace. And what would it look like for an entire church, for a congregation of people to rise up and say, my life means nothing to me. All these other things that try to define me and show me who to be, it means nothing. The one thing that I wanna do, the one task that has been entrusted to me is to testify to God's grace, well then maybe, just maybe people would begin to look in on us and look in on this church and they would describe us like Paul was described in the final words of this book. They would see a church where people proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. That's our goal. That's why we are here. Let's pray. Father, we love you. <clears throat> and awaken us to the power of your spirit. Let a movement be unleashed, Father. Let us see thousands of lives changed and hundreds of churches planted for the sake of your glory. Let us pursue these things passionately with a commitment and a drive that we see in this book of Acts, Father but we would count all else worth nothing compared to the task that you've given to us. And that we could move forward with all boldness and without hindrance to make you known. We love you, Father. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a full Sunday, and we still have some things that we want to accomplish this morning. We want to enter into a time of invitation. This is an opportunity that, as I've said before, if you've never really trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we want to celebrate that decision with you. If you want to join the church, if you need prayer, whatever it is that the Lord's prompting you, then we want you to respond obediently. So let's stand together during this time of invitation.
Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin. death of Christ I live. You can be seated. Good afternoon, church family. My name is Miranda Maples, and this is my wonderful husband, Johnny Maples. A, admit to God that you're a sinner and repent. B, believe that Jesus is the Son of God in heaven sin. C, confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you are someone that loves to sing or to um, lead or be with someone as they're singing church music, especially for Vacation Bible School. We would love for you to come this coming Sunday, or maybe you are. Maybe you're the more crafty type of person who loves glue sticks and popsicle sticks and stickers and fun things like that. This next Sunday we'll be meeting uh, in Harris Hall. And also, Miranda and I wanted to say that we think it's important that you know that you don't have to be an expert, right? We're looking for people who are willing and who love God and love to help children. So we hope to see you next Sunday, and we thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Hey, thank you all for hanging in there. Yeah, go ahead and applause. Yeah, good job. I know it's been a longer morning, so thank you for hanging in. It's a good thing, though, that uh, lunch will still be there for you when we leave, okay? So don't you worry. I, I appreciate you hanging in. Uh, it's been a full Sunday, and there are a few important announcements that I need to make sure we cover this morning, okay? Uh, first of which would be the, the reminder of the importance of prayer. Um, this Wednesday, we're going to have our all-church prayer gathering in the chapel at 6 o'clock. And as we said last month, we're trying to do this once a month as an intentional purpose for us to come together as a church family to pray for each other and with each other. So do everything you can to be there. Uh, we look forward to seeing each other and praying for each other this Wednesday at 6 o'clock in the chapel. You'll also notice in your worship guide that 
as we've been trying to move forward with this emphasis on prayer and fasting with the bulletin board outside, that we're trying to send uh, notifications and encouraging words. So if you're not getting those things or if you wanna sign up, you can look inside your worship guide. We would love for you just to email Sonia and, and she can keep up with those things and correct any information that you need. Now, that being said, there are a couple of important prayer requests that I wanna bring to our attention before we dismiss this morning. Uh, one is, is that um, I had a great conversation with Ms. Dorothy Parker earlier this week. And, you know, one of the great ministries that we have here is this ESL program. And a, a year or two ago, there was a young man that came through that program, developed a great relationship with Dorothy. They've been able to maintain communication even though he's gone back to the Middle East. And this past week, he was asking for our church to pray for him. Um, he's not yet a believer. Uh, and I'm, I'm keeping some things vague for sake of security. But he was in an area and, and he was uh, walking around and about five minutes after he left that area, a bomb went off. And so he began to text even more. And so we just wanna be mindful of, of the daily challenges that people face and be lifting these people up in prayer, the relationships that wonderful ladies like Dorothy have fostered with those that have come through that program. Now, in addition to that, I have another prayer request. Um, we have, have been giving some thoughtful consideration to the things that the Lord wants us to do here in this church, and, and I've had the chance to share this with a couple of our committees and, and the deacons and a few others. But I would ask you to begin praying for our church because we're gonna begin the process of searching for a permanent worship minister. Uh, and, and that's something that we've begun. I obviously wanna give recognition to Brad and Sarah who've served faithfully for so many years and Casey for the last several months, all of whom have done a phenomenal job in leading us in worship. Uh, but we as a church family, we're ready to move forward and make that position permanent. And so uh, personnel committee is working on job description. The nominating committee is, is praying through names that we wanna use to hopefully convene as a search committee. And we're gonna be talking about that in some of these upcoming business conferences. We're gonna keep you informed but I would love for you just to join us in praying as we seek to find a permanent solution to that important ministry position. And then finally, I would like to recognize Taylor Post. So Taylor, come on down. And Taylor has uh, done a phenomenal job in just a short amount of time as our interim college minister. And uh, she and I have pretty much forged a pretty instant friendship and connection. She is an incredible woman of God. And uh, we knew that an interim part-time position was a hard thing to, to offer as a permanent solution for the things that God was calling her to. So we celebrate with her because uh, a church in Waco has asked her to come down and be a full-time children's and family minister. And she's gonna do a phenomenal job at that. And so we wanna pray for Taylor in this new journey. Um, this is her last Sunday. And so we're, we're gonna celebrate with her and pray over her, uh, but we also wanna pray for our college ministry and the college students that you've invested in and many others have invested in and pray again for our church to understand how to move forward for meaningful college ministry here as we also celebrate the things that the Lord has called Taylor to do. So Taylor, thank you so much for your hard work. Let's put our hands together one last time for Taylor. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray over Taylor and then we're gonna stand up and sing our singing song and you're free. Can you believe it? It's actually gonna happen. So let me pray together. Father, thank you so much for Taylor. Thank you for the ministry and the heart that she represents to, to this college campus and really to the larger congregation of our church and the many ways that she has blessed this church family and blessed these students. We pray that you would go before her and let her have meaningful work as she enters into a new task and a new responsibility. Help her with the logistics, help her understand what is before her but we also pray for the college ministry here, for the students that 
remain in our care, that we would love them well and invest in them and that they would feel valued and be given the, the opportunity to grow in their faith and be challenged here. Uh, pray for us to have the wisdom of how to move forward in, in all these decisions that we're trying to make as a church. But let us do all of that in full view of your mercy, in full view of the gospel and the things that you've called us to do, that we would glorify you in all these things. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Taylor, I'm going to ask you to stand here, and after you are dismissed, please come by and just say a word of thanks to Taylor. You can stand and we'll sing our sending song. Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from Jesus Messiah, Lord of all, Jesus Messiah.